Welcome back to Cracking Coconuts, a podcast brought to you by 47 Roots, and this is your host, Myra. Today we'll be discussing Keeney Meeny, written by Phil Miller. This book is an investigative piece of journalism that uncovers the British government's involvement in the war crimes committed in Nicaragua and Sri Lanka. This podcast will primarily focus on what went on during the Sri Lankan Civil War. Phil Miller is an investigative journalist whose work has triggered two government probes. He is currently a reporter for Declassified UK and has written publications including Vice, The Guardian and The Times. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Phil. Hey Phil, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. How you been? Very, very well, thanks. Yeah. So how did you actually come about writing this book? Yeah, so it started um, back in about 2011 um, when I was involved in a, a group at the university where I was stud- studying at at the time, at SOAS University, um, that was visiting asylum seekers in detention centres like Yarlswood. And... Um, we heard that there were a lot of people being deported to Sri Lanka. The war had ended and the Home Office felt it was safe to send people back. And quite quickly, there were reports that when people landed in Colombo, they were being arrested and tortured. And for me, as as a young student, I was quite shocked that the British government would send people into harm's way, you know, to be tortured. I found that quite horrifying. And surprising, and I didn't really understand much about Britain's foreign policy towards Sri Lanka, why it was willing to send people to the Sri Lankan government for them to torture them. Um, and there was a, a Tamil activist um, who had come to the UK, uh, I think in the 1980s, who mentioned to me that in his childhood there'd been a, a company in Sri Lanka called Kinimini Services a British company that had particularly helped with um, the special task force. Um, And this this was intriguing for me. There didn't seem to be much written about this company. And um, after university, I started working for a small research group called Corporate Watch. And I was investigating the private security companies involved in running the hostile environment, so the detention centres and the deportation flights. but this company, Kinimini, it's still the name still intrigued me. So as I was using these techniques to research other security companies, um, I kept kind of chipping away, often in, in my spare time, at what Kinimini had been up to. Um, and also, it was a good time to be doing it because although it was a long time after the company had been active, um, there's a law in the UK that says after 30 years. Uh, government departments have to um, declassify the the documents that they wrote. Mm -hmm. So the files from the 1980s, you know, by kind of, uh, there were some delays, but by 2015, I was starting to get hold of files from kind of 1983, 1984, that had references to the start of Kinimini in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's when I realised, you know, potentially there's going to be a lot more information coming out about this company in the next few years. No one else was really doing this research um, in the Tamil community, but also among British journalists. It's, Sri Lanka wasn't, by that point, a very kind of topical subject. Uh, and also, I think there's a tendency among journalists to look at um, unsavoury things that other countries are doing or have done, and there's not enough sc- scrutiny of what our own government is doing. Mm. Um, so... I felt it was important that someone should look at these these files about this company. Mm. Yeah. So 
what is a mercenary? Yeah, so a mercenary in terms of like common how people use it kind of in the dictionary in in common understanding is someone who goes to fight for a foreign army. Um so the um the idea is that you are basically a gun for hire you'll fight for any any cause so long as there's money involved um one of the kind of earliest examples of this would be the east india company mm. that um was a private enterprise that uh, colonized and conquered large parts of india um and only later um did it kind of become absorbed into the british state and there are a lot of statues in the foreign office to early east india company commanders so the, the this issue of mercenaries is very kind of at the heart of british foreign policy going back kind of like 500 years and it was particularly used to build the empire and what i argue in this book is when the empire started to crumble in the like 1970s it was used as a way of keeping control of former colonies without being seen to intervene directly there is uh, certainly a push by some people who do this kind of work to call themselves private contractors, uh, businessmen, uh, because the, the term mercenary is, is seen as uh, kind of a, a slur or pejorative term um, because of the connotations that it has um, in terms of kind of unethical practice. So Kinamini, they were mercenaries. And what was their involvement then in Sri Lanka? Yeah, so... It started off um, in about January 1984. So if you think of like the July 1983 mm. riots, Black, um, Black, Black July, July yeah. as a, you know, kind of uh, iconic moment or watershed moment in, in the history of Sri Lanka and the, the Tamil struggle. Uh, so by January 1984, Kini Mini had a contract with uh, the Sri Lankan president to uh, train and uh, pretty much set up, because they didn't really exist before then, mm. uh, what is known as the Special Task Force, or the STF. Now, this is um, supposedly a police unit, but they wear army uniforms, they use army um, guns, and they are trained, or they were trained by Kinimini, to a very high standard of counterinsurgency, bodyguarding. They were effectively more elite than than the army um and kini mini were so senior at this um sdf training camp that they held the position of chief instructor um and this was from yeah january 1984 uh through to 1987 and kini mini would argue that they made this unit uh, to be very professional and respect the rule of law uh, what I do in the book is I trace uh, the actions of this unit while it was being trained by Kinimini and I show that actually it became more murderous and was in responsible for ever worsening massacres. Mm. And so who, on whose orders were Kinimini stationed in Sri Lanka? So uh, was this, yeah. was it that, sorry, was it that the Sri Lankan government asked them to come or was it a... Um, combined effort by both the British government and the Sri Lankan government? So at first, the uh, Sri Lankan government asked Britain to send serving members of the UK armed forces uh, to train them in how Sorry, to deal. That's okay. okay go. 
So at first, the Sri Lankan president, uh, Jayawardena, asked the UK to send serving British soldiers to Sri Lanka to help him deal with the Tamil um, movement, which at that stage was, was starting to overwhelm the Sri Lankan forces. Now, Britain at that time was selling a lot of weapons and other commercial items to India. Obviously, India it has a lot more money than Sri Lanka. So in terms of as a customer, it's a lot more important to Britain. Uh, and India was supporting the Tamil movement at that time. So there was a concern that if Britain sent um, serving soldiers to Sri Lanka, it would upset India. Um, and so Margaret, one of Margaret Thatcher's top advisors said, perhaps this venture could be privatised. And from that point, you start to see suggestions about companies like Kinimini uh, that they should take on this role in Sri Lanka rather than uh, people who were still members of the British Army doing it. Um, so that's how Kinimini came to be in Sri Lanka. It was kind of a convenient solution to uh, a problem where Britain wanted to stay in favour with both India and Sri Lanka. Um, and the company was very successful at um, getting on good terms with um, President Jawadna. So there's a declassified cable that I found where you see like the chairman of the company, you know, he had dinner with Jawadna where they talked about the war and all the things that he thought they were doing wrong and how they should change it. So they were very close uh, to President Jawadna um, and also his son Ravi, uh, who was very involved with the STF. They seemed to have some kind of affinity with him as well. Um, so they managed to ingratiate themselves at the highest level mm. of um, Sri Lankan politics and also the military chain of command. Was it Jay Wadner in your book that you say was an Anglophile? Yeah, so um, he was very pro-British by this mm. point in his life. Um, he told one of the um, British uh, high commissioners to Sri Lanka that his dream was to um, be taken down the the, the mall in, in London in a golden carriage next to the Queen. So this, you know, uh, this kind of um, very pro-British mentality, mm. this kind of product of colonialism that was still with yeah. with him. Um, yeah. So could you tell us a bit more about the Kokodi Chole massacre that c occurred in January 1987? Yeah, so this, this was a massacre um, at a prawn farm in eastern Sri Lanka. Uh, kind of s south of Bataclaw, um, where early one morning, um, Sri Lankan helicopters, army and STF moved in, uh, supposedly to deal with some kind of um, LTTE uh, cell in that area. But local people say around 85 people, including um, children, were, were massacred uh, by the STF and the army. Um, and at that time in the conflict, it was it was one of the worst massacres. Um, I, I mean, obviously now, Tamil community are, are kind of accustomed, shall we say, to much larger losses of life. But at that point in the conflict, eighty-five civilians being killed was was a really shocking mm. uh, thing. And um, by by this stage, you know, nineteen eighty-seven, the STF had been trained by Kinimini for three years, um, and yet they they still were had this uh, kind of callous disregard for human life. Um, and also by this point as well, Kinimini had been training the Sri Lankan army and it had been flying and coaching uh, helicopter pilots. Um, we know Kinimini pilots were flying 
in that part of Sri Lanka that month. We don't know specifically whether they delivered troops to that massacre, um, but there is other evidence that Kinamini did involve, uh, did deliver troops to massacres as well as firing on them from from the air. Mm. Um, and this issue of the helicopter pilots, I think, is particularly shocking um, because, you know, with the STF, okay, they were chief instructor. You know, British people were, were at the level of chief instructor. Um, but with the helicopter pilots, they were directly pulling the trigger themselves in some cases. Um, and this also kind of tipped the balance of power. Um, so when the, when the kind of armed struggle in Sri Lanka started, the Sri Lankan forces weren't that well equipped. They weren't that experienced. And so by mid-1985, uh, there were peace talks. There was a ceasefire. Um, there was a lot of unity among the Tamil um, factions. And they had these peace talks in um, in Bhutan, the Timpu talks, uh, with the Sri Lankan government. They were at the negotiating table, and there was a there was a possibility there of you know a negotiated settlement to the conflict in Sri Lanka, um, just you know a year or so after the armed struggle had really kicked off. But behind the scenes, uh, the Sri Lankan government were getting Kini Mini to bring out helicopter pilots to uh, fly their their helicopters and the ceasefire broke down and these helicopter pilots started delivering troops from the air and giving you know firing from the air giving air support to the troops on the ground um, which kind of changed the balance of power um, it put the Tamil uh, militants on the back foot mm. uh, they started scrambling around to try and get you know surface-to-air missiles and kind of rudimentary air defence systems in place. Uh, but that was no match really for what these helicopters were able to do. Um, and so I I argue in the book, people might disagree, but I think it's it's an interesting discussion to have that the Kinimini pilots um, helped to break down the ceasefire, to escalate the violence and to right. prolong the conflict. Yeah, that is the... Big argument. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, how is this all not illegal? Like, especially in the instances where they've killed civilians, how have they not, how have they come back to this country unharmed? Like, not harmed, but as in, how does, yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I would argue, I believe that Kinimini were both um, directly involved in murder and were complicit in murders and war crimes in Sri Lanka for which they got away with. You know, that's the title of, of the book, The British Mercenaries Who Got Away With War Crimes. Um, I believe that the police in the UK, there's a war crimes unit in, in the police, um, could look into these cases, even though they happened a very long time ago. There's no um, time limit on murder cases. I think there's just a lack of political will um, when I've been trying to get the files declassified, um, you know, the Foreign Office has been uh, dragging its feet, you know, taking up to a year in some cases to give me the documents, trying to uh, censor as much sensitive information as it can get away with. Um, they've destroyed files. They've also mm -hmm. planned to destroy files. When I've got my hands on some of the files that they plan to destroy, you can see it is, you know, referring to evidence of... UK trained forces in Sri Lanka killing civilians and that was information they wanted to destroy. So you have to ask whose side are the Foreign Office on? Are they on the side of the rule of law, uh, of people who have been involved in murder being held to account 
or are they on the side of letting war criminals get away with it? Read the book and yeah. reach your own conclusions. I mean, I was going to say, I think, spoiler alert, in, in the book you do say how they very well knew that the Sri Lankan army had already committed war crimes and yet they went ahead with deploying Kinimini and training them even more. So, so are you suggesting that the Foreign Office is complicit in the war crimes committed in, in Sri Lanka? Yeah, I mean, it depends how you define complicit. Mm. Um, there was a, a mixture of opinions in the Foreign Office. There was one lawyer in the Foreign Office who I think was quite appalled at what was going on and she said, uh, I believe it was a, a female lawyer in the Foreign Office, you know, that they had the power to revoke passports from British people who they thought were, were doing things that were manifestly not in the national interest. Um, and so when the Kinumini directors, you know, came to London, as they often did, that, you know, their passports could be re revoked and they'd be kind of stranded here and not be able to go abroad to conduct these mercenary activities. But their, their legal advice was not heeded. Uh, the passports were never revoked. They were allowed to carry on doing this. And there was kind of a, a realisation, I think, uh, by people in the Foreign Office that um, it was better, from their point of view, that a British company was giving this kind of support to Sri Lanka to stop them going um, towards, saying getting a Russian company to give mm. them support instead. They were very concerned at that point in the Cold War of... Um, Soviet influence mm. in the Indian Ocean, particularly at Trincomalee Harbour, which was like a key flashpoint mm. in the conflict in Sri Lanka. Um, I mean, personally, I think those arguments are pretty self-serving. Um, uh, I mean, Russian advisors would have would have struggled just from a, the point of view of a language barrier. Uh, I mean, English was was widely spoken among the Sri Lankan army mm. officers because of their um, you know, the influence of British colonialism. A lot of them had gone to institutions like Sandhurst in the UK for, for their officer training. Um, so I, I don't think Russian military advisors would have been able to um, impart, you know, would have been able to work side by side with the Sri Lankan forces in the way that British mercenaries were able to. Uh, but that was the justification that you see the Foreign Office give. And um, yeah, in order to stop this kind of geopolitical influence, um, sliding towards Russia um, this British mercenary company was, was tolerated and uh, the consequences were um, scores of Tamil civilians being uh, massacred and injured and the Tamil struggle being being set back massively and the, the conflict prolonged. So um, in your book you actually start at the beginning um, talking about the JVP uprising as well mm. um, I understand Kinamini didn't have involvement in that, but the British government did? Yeah, so I try and show in the book um, how Britain's involvement in Sri Lanka switches between times when they intervene directly. By directly, I mean they serve out, they send out serving members of the British Army or British intelligence to act as advisors. Uh, and at times when it's more diplomatic for them to do it covertly, through mercenaries with a layer of plausible deniability. I also think it's important um, in Sri Lanka to talk about what happened to the JVP and what happened to the Sinhalese left um, when we talk about what happened to the Tamils as well, because the debate, as you know, in Sri Lanka is very polarised. Um, and it's important to make the point that a lot of the um, techniques that Kinimini 
uh, taught or the, the, the capacity, rather, that Kinimini gave to the Shrankin forces, um, whilst it was used to devastating effect against the Tamils, um, very quickly it was also able to be used to devastating effect against um, Sinhalese people as well in the south, young people. Um, so the book kind of ends with the second JVP uprising, and um, you see there that the special task force turn their guns on the Sinhalese um, in, a, in a very gruesome fashion. Um, and so, yeah, I thought it was important to, to ensure that side of it was included as well um, in terms of how the book is received in Sri Lanka. No, I think you're right, because I think whilst a lot of people understand the Sri Lankan conflict and um, how brutal the government was from 1970s onwards, there was actually so much, so many lives lost even before that so I think hopefully people will read this and then enlighten themselves about that but um my next question is actually what was the most shocking thing that you discovered whilst during the process of writing this book yeah so I mean there's there's this um what kind of irked you and think shit I need to mention this yeah well I mean something that people seem to have picked up on a lot is we did this interview with um Richard Holworthy, who was the British defence attaché in Sri Lanka. So mm -hmm. defence attachés are like senior military officers who are sent out to uh, sit in British embassies towards the end of their career and write reports about what's going on in that country and send them back to the MOD. So we tracked down this guy who'd been in Sri Lanka while Kinimini were there. And you could see from the declassified files that he'd, he'd had lots of meetings with Kinimini. Uh, staff in Sri Lanka. Um, he'd been flown on helicopters uh, with Kinimini pilots. And he told us that he'd gone to Trincomalee uh, one day. He'd gone to the officer's mess and there were no wine glasses left in the officer's mess. And he asked, you know, where are the wine glasses? And he was told that um, they had been dropped from the helicopters with grenades inside them. Um, in some kind of like macabre technique, the uh, wine glass was used to... Um, hold the grenade lever so that it wouldn't detonate until it hit the ground um and that that seems to be a kind of a detail that has kind of um captured people's imagination but i think you know when i was going through the declassified files um i found all these uh affidavits um like missing people reports written by the tamil priests in sri lanka at the time um and just some of the things that had happened to uh, particularly young children at the hands of the STF. I mean, yeah, it definitely brought me close to tears. Um, and I wanted to try and do justice to some of those people suffering and, and convey it in the book and, and get that across to people. So I think there are points in the book where I hopefully um, make some of these stories really hit home. Um but yeah, we spent several weeks going round North and East Sri Lanka meeting um, widows and survivors of, of um, atrocities that were linked in some way to Kinimini. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very distressing. Um, but, you know, this is everyday life for many people, many Tamils who live in Sri Lanka and many people in the diaspora as well. Um, so... Um, yeah, hopefully this this book um, highlights what what Tamil community has has been through. Mm. Could you tell us a little more about what the STF did with little children? 
Yeah, so um, there were certainly cases about, um, you know, um, bodies in, in the mortuary being being found. Uh, the parents would go to look at the bodies in the mortuary and, you know, they'd turn the body over and they'd see that the had, like, sand stuffed in their mouth and they'd clearly been kind of executed face down lying on a beach. Um, yeah, very traumatic stuff like that. But, I mean, also bodies being um, being burnt uh, in tires and all this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, it's just heartbreaking, really, the the level of um, violence and brutality that was inflicted on on people. Um, yeah, all the while Keeney Meeny was making money from from coaching them. Mm. Uh, perhaps not in these specific tactics, but certainly giving them the firepower mm. to be able to go to these parts of Sri Lanka and round people up and do whatever they wanted with them. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, how did Kinimini actually come to an end? Yeah. So it was. It wasn't the work in Sri Lanka that was the um, undoing of Kinimini. It was uh, what they did in Nicaragua. Uh, at that time, Nicaragua had a democratically elected left-wing government that was hated by Ronald Reagan in the White House, and so there was a covert operation in the U.S. to overthrow this government. And uh, Kini Mini were brought into that. Um, and when this covert operation unraveled and became public, they found documents in someone's safe that referred to Kini Mini. There was an inquiry in the US Congress uh, where one of the top Americans involved in this covert operation named Kini Mini and, and said that he'd been involved in the sabotage of a hospital in the capital of Nicaragua, uh, which had um, exploded. Uh, and that led to Kinimini scaling back its operations, certainly in Sri Lanka, and kind of appearing to kind of fade away. Um, the name seems to stop being used, and they had another company uh, that was kind of running in parallel, uh, although Kinimini refers to it as its successor company, called Saladin, um, that for much of its life operated from the same building in London as um, Kinimini did. And that became more prominent uh, and still exists to this day um, with at least one of the same directors uh, who had been heavily involved in Kini Mini uh, registered according to uh, documents at Company's House. Mm. Uh, but I think, you know, they haven't been involved in, in these kind of scandals since. I think they realised uh, there was a limit to what they could get away with. Uh, but they haven't been held to account for what they did. So they've been allowed to kind of continue as a respectable private security company, despite having this very um, murky past. Mm. But I'm pretty sure there's other mercenaries across the world, like even today, especially yeah. in like Syrian places. Yeah, so um, it's still um, something that's going on. Um, there's been a lot of focus recently on a Russian mercenary company called Wagner Group. Mm. Um and the Ministry of Defence are worried about their activities in, like, Ukraine, Syria, Libya. Yeah. Um, but I went to an event um, a few months ago where there were people from Britain's private security industry. And one of them stood up and said, um, there's nothing that these Russian companies are doing that his company isn't doing. And he said the reporting about them had been hysterical and that there was already enough regulation governing Britain's private security industry. So I think he was concerned that 
kind of if the British government started to support an international ban on mercenaries, it could blow back and have consequences mm-hmm. for companies like his. Um, and he also said, you know, if you want to get oil and gas, extract it from conflict zones, you need private security. So he kind of, um, in quite a telling comment, showed the connection between kind of the, the global economy and what the kind of unsavory things that these private companies get involved mm-hmm. in, security companies. So I saw that your book actually featured in the Daily Mail, Mail last week, was it? Or earlier yeah. this week? Yeah. <laughs> um, so how has your book been received so far since its launch? Yeah, so there's been um, media coverage in the in the Observer and in the Daily Mail, mm. um, both fairly favourable, uh, which is, you know, uh, surprising to, to have mm-hmm. um, something that's liked by both those kind of audiences. Mm. Um, and we're doing an event on Sunday um, at 2.30 in the afternoon at the Indian YMCA in London. Um, and lots of people from Tamil community are, are coming to that. There's still space for more people to come. Um, so I think, yeah, there's a lot of interest, uh, particularly among young Tamils who, whose parents might have come here in the 1980s, fleeing the violence in Sri Lanka, and they're kind of learning for the first time about uh, this British company, Kini Mini, was involved in stoking up that violence that, that caused their parents to have to leave their homeland. Um, and I think that kind of puts a different perspective on how you see the conflict and also how you see Britain's role and what British Tamils can do. Because um, I know it's 10 years since the war ended, there's been a lot of lobbying at the UN, a lot of efforts to get the British government to call on the UN to call on Sri Lanka. And what I kind of show in the book is actually there's a lot of things that Tamil community in Britain could call on the British government to do directly uh, things that it was directly involved in, you know, files that it's still not declassifying, um, people who aren't being investigated for war crimes who live in the UK who perhaps should be. Um, so although the book is very bleak, I also feel that by bringing home, you know, the closeness of Britain's involvement in the war in Sri Lanka, it actually um, is like a blueprint for any young Tamils who want to engage in British politics um, with the issue of Sri Lanka and show, you know, what the British government's done in the past, perhaps, you know, how they could be held to account for that and also what they might do in the future based on this pattern um, that you learn of how British diplomats see the world and see Tamils. So say Tamils do want to get involved <coughs> and possibly do some lobbying. How could they go about doing that? Well, um, I think there are various organisations in the Tamil community who um, are more experienced with this kind of political work. Um, and I think, um, you know, th- throughout throughout the book, I had a lot of support from uh, the late Varada Kumar, um, who was director of the Tamil Information Centre and what he was very good at was bringing the Tamil community together um, he, he took quite like a neutral standing point and the Tamil Information Centre was a space where people from across the kind of political spectrum in Tamil community could come together and share information and learn from each other um, so I think you know he there's a lot to learn from his approach um, and he was very keen that, you know, the story about Keeney Meaning needed to be told. 
um, and that there should be some kind of accountability for what the company did. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I wouldn't want to kind of be pre- prescriptive about ways that Tamil community um, could approach this problem. There are lots of very creative and innovative people in the Tamil community um, who I think, yeah, I, I basically look forward to seeing, I mean, this partly, you know, with this event at the weekend, we'll be hearing from lots of different Tamil activists about their reaction to the book's findings and where they think uh, the community might want to go to try and get get accountability. Mm, thank you. So where can people actually buy your books? I, is it available on Amazon, Pluto Press? Yeah, so the publisher is Pluto Press, Pluto like the planets. Mm-hmm. Um, you can buy it on their website and uh, also, yeah, on all kind of bookseller websites like Amazon and, and so on. Um, we've also got a film um, that's going to come out later this year that, that we made in tandem with the book. So a lot of the interviews that I refer to in the book, we actually recorded them on camera. Um, so that's going to be out soon as well. And we've got a website, keenimeenie.info, uh, where you can see a trailer for the film. And uh, we've got a list of events and, and everything is kind of, yeah, there for people to follow. Brilliant. So thank you so much, Phil, for coming on. Thank you for your book. Thanks for I would me. highly recommend this piece of work for anyone who is interested in conflict, intervention, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency and like conflict strategy. But also, stay woke. Like, <laughs> read it anyway. So yeah, that brings this episode to a close. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share and subscribe. Spread the word about the book. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at 47 Roots. And last but not least, thank you all for listening. And this is Moira signing out. <laughs>